This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Miles McPherson. Miles stays very busy in Nashville as a session drummer. In 2017, he was awarded the Academy of Country Music Drummer of the Year. When Miles was still touring, he worked with Kelly Clarkson, Paramore, Tonic, and Better Than Ezra. He came off the road in 2013 to work as a full-time session drummer, and that he has done. He has worked with notable artists such as Reba McIntyre, Rascal Flatts, Chris Young, Kelly Clarkson, Tyler Farr, Lee Bryce, Chase Rice, Jeremy Camp, James Otto, and many others. To find out more about this episode and the close to 300 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher and Spotify. We also have a YouTube channel where we are regularly populating old episodes. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I have been doing here at the podcast, you can find us on patreon.com slash working drummer. For as little as $1, you can have access to educational content from PDFs to videos that former guests are providing for us. If Patreon isn't your thing, we also have a PayPal option. Any amount and any donation is really helpful in helping to keep this podcast going strong. Hey everyone, we are super excited to announce that Sure Microphones is helping to sponsor the podcast. This year, we've been talking a lot about recording from home. And for those of you who are just starting out or are looking to supplement your existing arsenal of microphones, sure it's got a microphone kit. That's perfect. The cost is just $349. This kit includes four must-have microphones. I'm talking three SM57s, which as many of you know is the industry standard when it comes to miking up snare drums, but it's also great for just about anything from toms to percussion and even vocals. In other words, you'll find SM57s in every studio from Oceanway Studios Nashville to Abbey Road all the way down to my neighbor's basement studio. The fourth microphone is a Beta 52A kick drum mic. This is one of my favorite kick drum mics. It has the punch and the low end all in one. If these were the only four microphones you had, you'd be ready to record. If you're looking to expand your collection, recording options, or even upgrade to pro-end mics, the DMK5752 bundle is perfect. I personally think you can never have enough SM57s, and the Beta 52A is amazing. This package comes with the hardware to mount the SM57s and a carrying case. Again, just $349 for a limited time. There'll be a link in the show notes to learn more about this great deal Sure is offering. Check it out. So as I mentioned, this interview was recorded yesterday, so we're doing a quick turnaround with this. Uh, the little I know about Miles, uh, I knew this was going to be a fun interview, and I'm so glad he had the time. We did have to reschedule, and I did explain to him that um, that's exactly the point of the people that we like to talk to on this podcast, is those who are working. Uh, and Miles is one of those guys that, you know, he has the experience he has uh, the talent to stay busy, um, but also just the personality, the work ethic, all those things 
that keep him busy as a drummer. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Miles McPherson. I, li- I like to say, you know, we pride ourselves on, you know, being prepared and doing our research. And uh, man, I was way off on you. <laughs> I thought you actually did some cool shit. Turns out you didn't do a damn thing anybody well, cared about. It turns out um, you're a pastor of Rock Church in San Diego and a motivational speaker and a former NFL football player. I'm also black and real big. Yeah. Well, I you know I thought that picture was uh, from a golf cart accident, but I think that maybe uh, you got messed <laughs> up at a Chargers uh, training camp or something. Yeah, I indeed had a very tragic football accident. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, I mean, I am sincere when I say that, like, when when we've set up interviews and people have had to reschedule, and it's kind of like, it's kind of what we really pride ourselves on is making sure that we're talking to people that are working. Um, you know, I mean, it's, and it's a weird time right now, you know, that there's a lot of people that are scrambling and trying to be creative in ways to earn income or even play music. Um, so it's, it's good that we find those, those people that are, that are doing it even in, in these weird times. So it's, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. Thanks again for, I could just be dodging you because I just don't want to talk on the phone. Well, there's that, there's that. It's not a guarantee that I'm working. (laughs) You can't prove that. (laughs) Well, I have yet to see a post from you that says my office of the day. So I have a feeling that (laughs) your bullshit is pretty straightforward. It's honest. (laughs) Yeah. All right. (laughs) Um, God, I, I just, it draws, I, I know some lovely people that do that. And I just, I just want to say, please don't, 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 don't say that unless it's really your office. Um, anyways. Yeah, it's, it's a little gross, but what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, man, I know your, your time is limited. I, I have, I have some You're things. damn right it is. Sorry. <laughs> I had some things I want to, I just kind of want to jump right in and just kind of figure out what's, and this has been a common thing this whole year is like, how have you handled this year and what what has changed for you compared to kind of the normal I know there's no normal week. I know there's no typical week for anybody in this business, but for what was normal say in 2019 for you, what has 2020 since March been like for you? Man, I'm a little embarrassed to answer that question. Um just because, you know, again, like you said, there's there's so many of us that are really struggling right now. Um, and this year has been a total kick in the pants um, for a lot of the brethren. Um, unfortunately, it's <laughs> not been the case for me. Um, I guess, unfortunately for everyone else and somewhat fortunately for me and my children. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there was, you know, there was that bizarre moment where we kind of saw the writing on the wall um i guess in in early march um that you know things were were about to get pretty fucking weird and and i i i had been very busy up to that point and i was like you know what this kind of sounds awesome like i i i could use a minute just to sort of sit back and gather my thoughts and kind of you know see if I can't get some perspective because I've just been running ragged the whole first part of the year. Um, and then it kind of happened and I was like, man, 
I feel like I should be doing something. So like I reached out to some people on social media and said, Hey, send me some tracks. Yeah. And I, I got sent a ton of stuff and it was awesome. And I, I spent a couple weeks just going through all those. I did a, a bunch of songs. I don't even remember how many it was, but it was a lot. Um, and, and it was really cool. And it was such a great way to connect with people that I had never met before. And it was interesting because the majority of the people that I was working with in those couple weeks were people that don't do music full time for the most part. Yeah. And kind of had these things just sitting around because they didn't have the resources to get them finished. Um, and then all of a sudden now they did. And so, and I had reached out to a few other people, some colleagues, you know, other musicians and mix engineers and stuff. And a lot of these people got these projects done. It was really cool. And it was a, a, a really awesome few weeks of seeing these people finding some healing in, you know, losing their jobs, albeit temporarily or whatever, um, you know, to, to be creative and, and find some, some distraction in that while the world sort of crumbled around us. Um, and then as soon as that ended, it was like the, the, the rest of the people that I normally work with kind of were ready to get back to it in some capacity. So, as soon as that sort of little time period was over, it, it was like I went back to, to working like nothing had happened. I was just working from home. Right, right. Um, so, I man, I, I didn't really have but a day or two off this whole time period. Um, I, in fact, this has probably been the busiest year I've ever had. That, that's... And it's, it's crazy. And, I mean, like, it, it got so... It got so demanding that I, I actually had to move um, to a, a place where I could work more often because I was in a in a sort of a tight, close neighborhood subdivision situation in the beginning of the year, um, and then when you know everybody kids are not going to school and stuff, I didn't want to be a noise pollutant while everybody's stuck at home. Um, you know, they can't run away from my terrible loud noises. They're <laughs> having to sit there and soak in it. Um, so yeah, I had to, I had to move, um, just so I could have 24 access, 24 hour access to, to working. Um, is it a place outside of where you live? Like where you can go like an office space? No, I, I, I ended up moving. Part of the problem too was I was in Antioch, um, which for those that don't live in Nashville is a terrible fucking place. Um, and, and it's, it's not so much that the, the place itself is bad, but the commute is really fucking horrific. Um, there's a particular stretch of interstate that is just known for being the absolute worst. And it was really ruining my general disposition, having to drive on that stretch of interstate twice a day. Um, so I moved into town um, into a, a house that's I, I'm two minutes from the majority of the studios that I work at um, most of the time and I've got a just a huge basement finished basement that's just one giant room that's um, my studio now so no it's it's here that's awesome man it's, it's underneath my feet which is fantastic um, you know it's it's a blessing and a curse it's Sometimes you can't get away from the work, but thankfully I love what I do. So it's, it's pretty rare that I'm like grumpy about it or whatever. It's <laughs> <laughs> this time I'm pretty fucking stoked to go work. 
<laughs> so many listeners are like, oh, fuck you, man. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Fucking first world problems or whatever. Right. But no, like I, by and large, I, I, I hands down would not do anything else and thank my lucky stars every day that I get to do this, especially this year. Well, I mean, right. It's just crazy right. how many people are just fucked. It's awful. I just, I just have this feeling, you know, that, that we're in, we've been living in a gig economy for longer than that word has been around. And right. people are creative by nature that work like this. And so I think we're finding creative ways to, to be busy. And, you know, there are those of us that have had the home studio forever. And, you know, there's, there, then there's those of us that are behind the curve and we're trying to, we're trying to catch up. And uh, so that's great. There's like a, a renaissance of creativity that's coming out of people doing these kinds of things. Now you have you have kids, a couple kids. Uh, yeah, I've got a 14 year old and a 13 year old. Okay, all right, um, cool. Similar to me, uh, 15, 18 year old who's off right. in college. But yeah, with the 14 year old here at home, um, it's been a challenge. Now I've got a small room that it's somewhat soundproof, but at the same time, my wife is working from home and she has right. to be creative in her work. So she's like, Hey, I need to write during this, these hours. Can you hold off on the thumping until like this hour, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm talking about a family that has been extremely supportive and patient with my uh, my noise, and that is a blessing for anybody that has that you know going on. So, when you say you reached out to people, like initially, um, to maybe those that weren't regularly producing, maybe not the regular engineers and producers that you've worked with, but those that had projects, and you reached out on social media, was that just like Instagram posts say, hey, I'm recording from home if anybody needs anything? Was it more involved in that? Uh, no, it was just an Instagram post, but the, the, the point of it was is that I said I was, I was doing it totally for free. Um, and so I just put up an Instagram post and I was like, look, if, if, if anybody has, if I can do anything for anyone, the only thing that I really know how to do is this stupid thing that I do where I go hit shit and it prints ones and zeros on a fucking hard drive. Um, and so I said, if, you know, if, if this is a, of a, a benefit to anyone, you know, just send it. I, let's, let's just do it. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, don't. Don't worry about money. Let's just let's do something creative to try and not think about the fact that everything sucks. Right, right. I, I saw that across the board. People doing that. Hey, I'm doing this drum solo. Add to it. Or here's a track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and that was I don't know, man. That was that was really awesome, and I I think that was sustaining for for a while. Let me ask you about your home studio. So you already had something in place. I'm guessing. Correct. I, I've had um, I've had some sort of studio pretty much since I was a teenager. Um, thankfully, my my dad is a musician, so we ha we had a studio in the house growing up, and it it just it became such a regular part of my life that I I, I could never go without. So there's only been a few years in my existence where I haven't had some sort of situation that I could record in. Yeah. Yeah. And like your knowledge of studio gear and all, I mean, has that always oh, been? Oh, it's terrible. I, I don't know shit. Um, I, I, I barely scrape by as an engineer. Um, I, I've only sort of stepped it up recently in that 
I, I moved everything over to Apollo's, so I'm doing everything in the box. Um, yeah. Cause you know, before just the way I had to have everything set up was typically people would come over um, and we would track, you know, I would have an engineer or a producer or whatever. So I, I had all of my outboard gear set up in a different room or across the room or whatever the case was for whatever studio situation I had at the time. But point being, I could never engineer from the chair. So I would always have somebody come in and get sounds. And then it's just kind of like, that's what I had until somebody else came in and got sounds or whatever, because I couldn't really change much of anything. And I, I guess I could have, but I was really lazy and incompetent. So I didn't. Yeah. Um, but now that I have the ability to, you know, basically like my setup right now, I've got three separate stations, um, all of which have a full monitor and keyboard and trackball. Um, one is my primary kit, which doesn't really change very much. Um, you know, I might swap out a kick drum and snares, obviously, and cymbals, but it stays pretty much configured as it is um, with my 72 Rogers kit. And then I've got just an engineering station, which is just my, my primary desk mm-hmm. where my computer and shit is. Um, and that's where I'll usually do all my editing just because it's a more comfortable chair. And then I have a, a third setup, which is just kind of like a anything goes um, – blank canvas of just some mic lines and random weird mics and shit and just a bunch of bizarre drum stuff kind of hanging around that I can just sort of cobble together for bloop shit or, you know, whatever bizarre dumb thing or just if I get drunk and want something to do, that's usually where I go. <laughs> so I, I love that. I, I feel like I've, I'm almost there. Like I've got the, you know, the two thing I'm, I'm almost there in understanding what you're talking about. I'm almost there sure. in the, in the, the, the third part. I've, I'm starting to explore that more, you know, as we're adding percussion on it. And I've, I've found some like cool hacks, like uh, a former guest on the show, great drummer, Steve Gould, uh, had, oh, yeah. had a, had a percussion rig where he took a, a, uh, a, one of those rain drums or I, I think that's what it's called. And he put a snare head on it. So I meet and he played it and I was like, holy shit. And so I immediately went out and bought one and like put a head on it and, and used it. And then, um, Steve Brewster speaking of the Steves, uh, um, sorry, sorry. Let me, let's back this up. Cause that sounds like a cool thing that I need to steal. What what is the what what drum? Okay, so there's that Remo. Um, I think it's called Rain Drum, and it's like. Are you talking a, about the wave drum? The wave the drum. Ocean drum. That's right, wave drum. I, I yeah. I was like, yes, I'm not saying yes. it right. So he would buy like a like it was almost just under 14 inches, and take an old snare head and just shove it on there so that the rim just fit around the edge of it. And then he would put it on a snare stand and use brushes or broomsticks or whatever. And the beads inside were like the snare. And it was cool, super cool. And so I'll use that sometimes. Uh, I haven't perfected the sound yet, but sometimes I'll even put the whole thing on another snare drum and then use brushes on it. And the combination of the wave drum and the snares, like a shallow 4x14 has been a cool, like, um, you know, just acoustic-y train thing. That's been a cool hack. Steve Brewster's, you know, take a 16 or 18-inch Remo, uh, 
djembe and you know use a kick drum mallet with a towel on it slightly for that subwoof right so those been a, a couple hacks that have been really fun and clients and people that they're like this is cool what is this sound and you know, it makes me sound like Ayrto Moriera or something like that. And all I'm doing is hitting something. But w- I don't even know what you just said. But yeah, <laughs> all right. I, I said yeah with cheese. Um, and what <laughs> is there anything like that that you've? I mean, I see sometimes when I was looking at some of your Instagram posts, there's like freaking toys on your desk and things like that you're hitting. And is there anything that you've like? Okay, this has been cool. This is my sound. This is a this is a cool percussion thing. Um. I've tried the the whole sort of approach for me this year is to not is to try and find as many things like that as possible and then move on. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So to call anything my sound, I mean, you know, there's one sort of dumbass thing that I do all the time, just on you know as I'm traveling around to different studios. You know, we're in a situation now where you know a lot of stuff you don't have cartage, so it's just like. I can only sort of expand on a drum kit with whatever I have in my backpack okay, um, or in my stick bag or, or whatever. So, you know, it's like there's only so many toys I'm willing to bring for a non-cartage session. So, like, one of the things that I'll do is the classic splash symbol on the snare thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's if, if somebody were to, to, to pin me with a gag that I've overused, it would be that. Um but as far as at home, especially, and I, I just kind of came down to the studio to sort of look around at all the dumb shit that I've bought <laughs> at fucking Goodwill over the last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so what I'm kind of doing is I'm sort of just accidentally building a sample library. Um, I, I've been doing a, 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 this year a, a lot of what I call sort of live programming which is just recording dumb sounds and and kind of tweaking them a, a bit and then just putting them in a library so I've got stuff to kind of build loops that don't sound as stock as they might, if, you know, if I were just pulling them from a splice fucking thing or whatever. Um, so the like you mentioned the wave drum, um, I, I got one of those and I still – like. I'm glad that you mentioned the head thing because I haven't tried that yet. I've just kind of like hit it with yeah. shit, mm-hmm. which, you know, is cool. Um, I've also used the wave drum um, as a uh, as a like a transition rise and fall kind of thing. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, definitely requires a lot of treatment and stuff. But that's been really cool. Um, let's see. Looking around. Um some other dumb gags. I, I, I did get, um, I got one of those bass drum stands that you can mount a bass drum, sort of like a snare drum or a Tom. Okay. Um, and I've bought just a bunch of goofy bass drums anywhere from 28 inches to 18 inches. Um, and I've, I've set up kits where I'm using a bass drum more as a, you know, I'm playing them with sticks and, and so it just kind of, it, it expands some of the things that I can do with patterns and stuff. Um, let's see other stupid things. I've got a lot of, um, I've been going down the rabbit hole of purchasing, uh, drum machines and keyboards that have been circuit bent. What's, I, I don't know um, what that means. It means that some nerd <laughs> has taken a piece of gear and 
fucking mangled it in a way that you can um, do a bunch of wild stuff with it. Like, um, and typically what it is is it's like a series of added switches, um, and then they'll have like a little – I don't even know what you'd call it. There's like a little auxiliary port thing where they've got several different cable connections. And when you plug in cables to these random different uh, – can I, can I, I don't know. The words are hard and I'm not a nerd. So, uh, But you plug in these cables and like it'll just mangle the sound. Like an old – those keyboards, what are they? I think they're called buklas where you would plug in the different cables to get different sounds, reroute them early yeah. since, you know, well, 60s. Well, that's, that's more of a – that's more of a modular sense thing. Okay. This is just – this is just basically sort of creating really gnarly effects within the piece of gear itself by adding some other circuitry. That's – wow, um, that's crazy. And where would you find something like that? Uh, that's typically a reverb thing. Um, I have a couple like running circuit bent searches where I'll just kind of go through and grab stuff. But so what I'm doing with that stuff, um, I'll, I'll combine that with uh, acoustic sounds as well, because it's already something that doesn't sound like, you know, a, a normal sample just because it's pretty wrecked and in an analog fashion. Um, so it just kind of has this sort of baked in character that's already a little different and unique and then when i layer that with other percussion stuff like i've been uh one thing there's like um what do they call this thing a pandero or minel makes these little um it's like a headed tambourine on a with a kick mount yeah 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 yeah. um so i've been using that as a bass drum on a few things because it's got a shocking amount of low end um and I'll like I'll combine that with one of the circuit bent sounds or like I've got a washboard that has a piezo pickup in it. Um, and that's another thing, too, is I've, I've been buying um, contact microphones and sticking them in percussion um, and, you know, running stuff through pedals. Um, wow. OK. Kind of stuff like that. So it's not as much. I, I, I guess my headspace these days is a little more geared towards the engineering side of uh bizarre sounds and stuff just because when i'm at home that's you know i have access to that whereas i can't necessarily do that in the studio so it's it's more of a hobby than anything but practically speaking i i use it to make money every day um oddly enough so that's kind of more of where i'm at right now is just taking analog sources and and just using them as inappropriately as possible and and building a sample library that you can take with you wherever you're at and use them plug them in like if you're on a session say i've got something for the bridge check this out i'm gonna i'm gonna build this loop out of these things i have that kind of thing well yes in theory but just for for whatever reason I, i haven't let it leave the house okay um just because the the overdub situation for me here is is kind of a special thing, and I kind of want it to remain sort of exclusive, right? Um, you know, I, I want I want to be able to offer things to people that I can't or won't offer outside of these walls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get into the studio, do your thing under normal circumstances or whatever, and then I, I know what you mean. There is a 
there's a beauty in having that space at home, that comfortability to be able to create and not feel like someone's over your shoulder. Well, and it's a time factor too. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do here at the house is is painstaking. It's you know, it's definitely not something that that budgets can afford in a studio right now. Mm-hmm. You know, when somebody sends me a track to do kind of the live programming thing, um, it, it'll take me a whole day, sometimes two days. Wow. Um, you know, whereas a normal drum track, I, I can I can print, edit, and have out the door in thirty minutes. Um, but when I'm doing this kind of sound design stuff, yeah, it's it's a full day affair. But you know, I I do it, and it and I don't charge any more for it than I would for the thirty minute overdub, uh-huh. uh, just because I am able to take all of those loops and all of those individual samples and all the multi tracks and save them in a folder somewhere where I've got this sort of slowly accumulating uh, library of sounds and, and loops where maybe someday I can sell them or I don't know, or take them outside and use them in other studios. But the, the main thing is that, um, you know, there are days where I don't have the time that I would like, or I, I want to use a little bit of that without going too deep down the rabbit hole. So instead of building new sounds and building new loops, I can go back to some of the stuff that I've already done. And instead of taking an entire day to deal with something, I'll just sort of recycle a couple sounds and I can, you know, I can have some, a cool second verse option in, you know, 15, 20 minutes as opposed to right. you know, sitting around and recording me tapping on a sock that's dripping in oil and there's a hydrophone over on the other, you know, whatever, just stupid, stupid stuff that ends up eating up hours of my day. Right. And it sounds like, it's getting faster as you're building this library and like figuring out the workflow and different things like that. You've got it, you know, um, that's a, man, that's a really great, I love that. And, and, and to think of all the toys and all the weird stuff that we find when we're out and tapping on shit constantly and driving people crazy, but then putting that together. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. I mean, that's the bottom line is this, this kind of, this season of my life this year is more of, I would call it more of a hobby than anything else, but somehow it's become a, a, a huge source of my income, which is okay. Awesome. I, I think for a lot of us though, this is maybe started drumming or making music was maybe started out as a hobby. And then, oh, yeah, then you found out, I mean, there are, I think you might be an exception growing up in a house where your father was a professional musician, you know, and you're, and you're like, Oh, you can make money with this. No, some people do it as a hobby miles. Really? Why? You know, <laughs> I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing. Well, uh, unfortunately I, I came up organically as, as most did just for the love but um, that's great. That's great. Well, I had a clear path to the money, I guess you would say. <laughs> One last thing about the home studio: you are you utilizing electronic drums very much in that? I saw that on a picture. I think a recent uh, modern drummer feature that you had uh, it looked like a picture of electronic drums that you had in your home studio. Yeah, I. I'll say this: that never really got incorporated into my normal recording process there was a period of time where um th- i was getting asked to do a lot of midi overdubs okay um because guys were just eliminating the middleman and mixes anyway and just you know throwing samples on everything so they were like wait a minute i cannot do that and just have only samples mm-hmm. um and so there was a time period where that was kind of a thing um 
that that kind of went by the wayside. And then I, I really only had that electronic kit um, as recently as that modern drummer shoot um, as a practice kit, and which I never did anyway. So it basically just sat there. Um, so yeah, I finally got rid of it. And now instead of having that as a, as a real estate eater in my studio, now I have this little B kit playground thing, which is far, far better than that electronic drum kit that just didn't get any use. It was a great kit. You know, Yamaha makes a killer product, but it was just, it was collecting dust. Yeah. It's so funny. I have a friend of mine who's clearing out space in a studio. And so I have acquired his old Roland electronic kit. And so a couple people I work with say, Hey, I've got this to my arsenal. And they're like, cool. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Okay. (laughs) Now what? Right. Now what? (laughs) I mean, I know it and MIDI and samples and okay. But I, I'm like, I don't know. So I, I was like, I wonder if Miles has utilized this somehow, and you've kind of answered that question. Man, I never, I, I, I got to be honest, and I tried. I truly tried. I tried to figure out ways to, you know, because I was given that kit, and it's like a $5,000 kit, and it's, it was great, and I was like, man, I've got to use this. I felt guilty. Like, I was like, I have to incorporate this into my daily existence somehow. Dude, I never figured out how, and I'm sure there's guys that have, but I'm not the guy, apparently. <laughs> um. Speaking of your dad, I, I'm just really curious to know like what it's like. I mean, your dad's credits are insane, and I, I just the unique opportunity to grow up in that environment. I'm, it's so it brings me a lot of joy to know that like you discovered this stuff organically. I I had a feeling you were. I think I read somewhere you were expected to play guitar. Your dad's a guitar player, but drums were the thing. And why? Why that? Why drums? Man, if I had an answer for that. Um, I'd, I'd probably be a smarter dude all around. Um, you'd be a guitar, just, you'd be a guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it was just a Neanderthalic draw, you know, it was just like, Oh, fag get beat things. Fag want beat things. It, 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 there was no, there was no thought process. There's no rhyme or reason. It just, that was, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe in much of anything, so I certainly don't believe that I was, you know, predestined uh, to be a drummer. But there's there's something about maybe my personality type, or I, fuck, who knows? Uh, no, it was just that was that was for for lack of a better term, that was my calling. What was the first experience in the studio? What was that like? Well, uh, you know, I, I feel like I need to preface this with saying that you know the relationship with my dad. Um, was not one of nepotism, but I would I would be remiss if I said that it didn't have some really huge advantages for me um, getting to where I am now. Um, you know, my dad had a lot of integrity as far as, um, you know, he wasn't the guy going to bat for a lot of other people. He just kind of did his thing and, you know, uh, played the gig and moved on. He wasn't like, Oh man, you should check out this guy and call this guy and do this. So he didn't do the same for me either. Um, there, there was no nepotism as far as that's concerned specifically, but I did grow up in an environment to where, you know, I had a very unique advantage. Uh, you know, we had a studio in my bedroom, um, 
from the time that I first got a kit when I was 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my first my first thing that I actually recorded drums onto a thing and got paid for it was uh, something that my dad hired me for. Um, it was a movie soundtrack. So it was just me and him in my bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> so That's cool. it's, it's a little unfair to, to call that my first session, but it, it truly was. And it was really cool that that's what it was and that he could have hired anyone else, but he knew that for what he needed for this track that I could get it done and that it would benefit both of us to, to have that experience together. That's amazing. Um, so that was really cool. And to be honest, beyond that, I don't remember my first anything as far as sessions were concerned because it just kind of I just kind of fell into it from there but that's that's truly the marker that I have for when it all started and that was when I was 15 yeah like I said I've got a 15 year old who's playing guitar and at the school of the arts here in Asheville and as my studio grows he gets my hand-me-downs and so it's funny walking through with the homeschooling. I feel like, man, we've got like two studio suites rocking in this house now. <laughs> That's awesome. The Lego table has been replaced with this, you know, MIDI keyboards and you know, <laughs> amps and things like that. New monitors, you know, it's just been. I love great. it. Yeah, it brings me so much joy. And I'm really trying hard to make sure that I don't, you know, give him, like overwhelm him with... Uh, I don't know, any stupid advice that would detour him from his love of music right. and making music. And, you know, I, I'm sure your father saw your interest and your passion for making music and drumming and just wanted to just kind of keep that alive and encourage you the best way he knew how from a professional, you know, point of view. Uh, but I'm curious to know, what kind of advice he might have imparted on you? Like, listen, I work with this drummer and when he does this in the studio or this is his thing, he works all the time and you need to concentrate on doing this every time you're laying down a groove or consider this when you're recording. Anything like that you recall or? Well, let me say this. Um, I wasn't the easiest kid growing up. <laughs> and um, so while he may have tried to impart wisdom and advice upon me, I, I didn't fucking listen. Um, and I don't know that he did. What what my dad was really good about doing was providing me with resources and opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so like occasionally he would have a drummer buddy come over to the house and just hang out or whatever. Or, um, I would go out on the road with him and, you know, just get to hang out behind Chris McHugh or Greg Morrow and just sit behind them and watch them do the gig from, you know, right beneath their butt. Mm -hmm. Um, Dan Needham was another one that I, that I got to go out on the road and watch a lot. Um, so there was those kind of opportunities and, you know, just having, again, having the gear in the house and, you know, I, at 13, I wasn't able to buy fucking four eight ats or whatever. So him having that stuff in the house was a huge leg up for me. Um, but it wasn't like he spent a lot of time showing me how to use stuff or mm-hmm. telling me what to do. And again, 
he may have, and he could be listening to this, being really pissed off and be like, oh, I told you all kind of shit. And I'm like, oh, I'm fucking <laughs> listen, sorry. Um, but his, his impact was, was very significant in, in the resources and opportunities. And also like, dude, I mean, it, it went on for years. There was one of, one of the coolest things that ever happened. Um, there was a time period where, um, I had moved back from Los Angeles and, and when I was in LA, I was just in a band. I wasn't, you know, I, I truly wasn't making money playing music. Um, there was about five years where I was just being in a band and being an idiot and, you know, doing telemarketing and whatever. Um, well, when we were in LA, um, we got pregnant with our first kid and had to move back to town, back to Nashville and, you know, sort of reality came, came a knocking and, um, I, I had to quit the band and just started working and I, I didn't play drums for, God, almost two years. Um, didn't have a place, didn't have a kit, didn't have anything. And, um, I was working three jobs and in this time period, we ended up having a second kid as well. And, um, but I, you know, there was obviously a part of me that desperately wanted to get back to, to playing drums. And especially if, if at all possible, let that be my, my source of income rather than painting houses and parking cars and the million other things that I was doing at the time. Um, and in that time period, I was, I was valeting at a, at a restaurant called Rumba over on West End. Um, I don't know if you remember that. I don't. But it, it, uh, I was parking cars and my dad pulls in and I'm like, uh, can I help you, sir? <laughs> and uh, he's like, oh, I just came to say what's up. I was like, oh, cool. And I, I kind of looked over him and in the passenger seat was a snare drum. And I was like, hey, dad what are you doing with a snare drum in your car, man? <laughs> and he was like, it's for you. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's for me. And he was like, Chris McHugh got the snare and, and didn't love it and said he wanted you to have it. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Because at, at this time I didn't have anything. I didn't have gear. I didn't, I especially didn't have anything good. What little bit I still had from the band I was in. Um, and it was a, it was a Gretsch new classic brass, sort of black beauty thing, six and a half by 14. Um, and I've, I've used that drum almost every day since I got it. Mm -hmm. Um, I still use it to this day. In fact, I'm looking at it on my kit right now. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So just stuff like that, man, you know, also in that same time period, um, I, you know, I had this 72 Rogers kit that I have currently. It's my main kit that's in my studio. Um, it was my first kit that my dad gave to me when I was 13, or my parents rather, um, for Christmas, uh, that year, they, you know, Greg Morrow at the time never sold kits and my dad got him to sell this kit to him. And the condition was that if we ever sold the kit, we had to sell it back to Greg. <laughs> and so when I was in this metal band at the time, I didn't need this Rogers kit. It was not a metal kit or so I thought, um, you know, I thought I needed something cooler. So I wanted to get some other stuff. And so I, I said, Hey dad, I, I got to sell this kit. I, I, I need to buy symbols and shit. And he was like, well, I'll buy it from you. And then whenever you're ready, I was like, I'm never going to want it again, dad. It's a stupid kid. It doesn't do metal. <laughs> He's like, it just fucking slow down. He's like, I'll buy it. 
And if you ever need it again, you can buy it back from me. And, you know, lo and behold, of course, I'm an idiot and he's not. And years later, I, I went and bought it back from him. And I've, it's been, you know, my main moneymaker. Um, so he's just, he's always kind of just been the sort of the quiet hand of, uh, I was about to say something poetic and cool, but I didn't know where to go with it. <laughs> he's always just been just a, a really excellent encourager in a, in a, in a way that's, that's more just, you know, like kind of giving me the, the tools with which to, to hang myself or, uh, succeed. Um, that, I mean, well, that right there, man, you, you give the child the tools and they can do what they want with it to hang themselves yeah. or succeed from it. That, I mean, that's amazing. As a father, that's amazing advice, you know, just to be there for support. You don't need to tell them what to do, guide them all the time. It's like you encourage, you be a, you know, you be support. Yeah. And, and that's, and that was certainly his role. And, you know, especially on things like, you know, he'd, he'd just hand me, uh, like, at, at, I remember when I was a kid, he got this thing called a Yamaha QY10. And it was just like a little sequencer programmer thing. And and he just kind of handed it to me. And I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? And he was like, I don't know, figure it out. And, you know, sure enough, I started taking it on road trips and stuff and found the instruction manual and, and started building songs and you know, I, I, that was my first foray into programming was just, he gave me some dumb piece of gear that, you know, instead of saying, well, this is what you should do with it. And here's how you should use it. And man, check this out and do that. You know, he just handed it to me. And that was kind of, that was, that was sort of the, 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 the MO for our relationship growing up as far as him, um, furthering my music career was just, he'd just kind of hand me shit and say, all right, go figure it out. Have you been able to pay it forward at any point in time? Like, hey, dad, you need to check this out. And he'd say, I don't know what that is. Oh, here, let me show you. Well, uh, to a certain degree, yeah, sure. Um, you know, when, as he and I both, you know, there was a period of time where, well, I say there was, there there has been a period of time in the, in the last decade or so where both he and I have, have spent a lot of time pouring uh in, investing time and money into our, our home recording situations. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's certainly been a lot of back and forth as far as, you know, Oh dude, you got to check this software out or this plugin or this gear or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I, and that's probably more selfishly just driven by, you know, my dad is kind of my best friend and we, one of our huge common ground areas is gear and, and, you know, what we do for a living. So it's really more born out of just shooting the shit. Um, and so, yeah, we, we certainly have that, but it, it, it's really just because we just talk every day about dumb stuff and our dumb stuff is always gear or whatever. I'm picking your brain about this uh, just from a very selfish place because I, I feel like I'm kind of going through this right now. And it, I don't know, for lack of a better term, it's kind of my love language with my son is that we talk gear. And he, like, introduced me to this free sample library last week. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're, like, already showing me shit that I don't know. <laughs> and uh, and then when we talk about looking over my shoulder because he's in the other room. Uh, and then we, <laughs> when I try to talk to him about other things, it's kind of like, yep, 
you know, not much. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know if you're understand what I'm saying. I think you do. But it, oh, totally. We, we, it's like, we just like, man, check this out. Have you heard this? Have you heard that? You know, I, you know, try this sample. Blah, 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 blah. And then, um, how's things going? How's school? Good. Cool. All right. <laughs> See you at dinner. <laughs> well, and also too, it's, it's funny because, you know, you, and I think this, this is with any parent, um, you know, you always try and find as, as much common ground with your kids as possible because, that's where you're able to, to, to get the most out of conversation. Um, yeah. Cause like you said, you know, how's school, you know, that's, <laughs> that question will, will forever and always yield zero results yet. We will always as parents feel obligated to ask it. I still do it every day. Just, and I, and like, and I know that the eye roll is coming. I know that the bullshit two word answer is, is looming around the corner, but I still do it. But you know, and it's funny too, especially like when you do find common ground with your kid. And I think this exists in, in almost any relationship too. Sometimes you get excited because you've got this thing and, you, and you're just, you've got this momentum of, of connecting in this relationship. And then you're like, Oh dude. And I'm playing this video game that is so dope got this thing where there's like these fucking vikings and like they come over and they're and, and then you just like hear dead silence on the other end you're like oh so we don't connect on that so let's go back to this other thing where i know we do connect and yeah as a parent that's tough man it's and and we certainly had that dynamic you know he'll he'll tell me about stuff where i'm like cool dad uh so anyway i'm gonna go like, Dad, you know, no, no one plays Assassin's Creed anymore, so I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know what Valhalla is. I don't now. know. I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's middle age video game. Um, so are your kids into music? Do they do that as well? No, so we don't have shit to talk about. <laughs> All right, great. Moving on. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Let's talk about Paramore. I realize this was a short-lived thing, but I'm curious to know uh, how that came about and what that was like. Well, so that's actually a longer story than, you know, probably than even <laughs> the time that I spent with them. Um Growing up, uh, one of my best friends was Justin York, who's a guitar player, uh -huh. um, and his younger brother is Taylor York, who is a principal member in Paramore. Now, Taylor was in the band in the very beginning, but didn't – I can't remember if he didn't want to or his parents wouldn't let him uh, – wouldn't let him get out of school to you know be in the band full time. So he, he left the band and didn't come back until the third record, I want to say. Um, and that's when the band at that point added Taylor as a second guitar player. So the band, when Taylor rejoined was the brothers, Josh and Zach, um, Taylor, Jeremy and Haley. Um, and I think this was at the third record. I'm, I'm not a historian and I'm also an idiot, so I could be getting some of these facts wrong. <laughs> anyway, long story short, I've known Taylor uh, and Justin. I, I especially knew Justin because he and I were in our first band together. We would jam together pretty much any weekend that we could get our parents to bring us to one or the other houses. And, you know, um, 
so a lot of a lot of my musical upbringing had had Justin York somewhere in the frame. Um, and then sort of, and at that time, Taylor was, was significantly younger and, you know, like the, the age gap then was, he was just kind of like this little kid. Um, we didn't really hang out or anything and he would just kind of come and play drums cause he was obsessed with drums and he was actually really good. Um, and I always sort of just knew him as this kid drummer. And then, you know, I, I sort of saw that he had joined Paramore as a guitar player. And I was like, oh, shit, that's crazy. Um, but still wasn't as close with him as I was with Justin. And then um, Justin ended up joining Paramore as a, as a sideman, um, as, as, a, as the second guitar player when Josh left. And so... Then um, I was out with Kelly Clarkson at the time, and I kind of saw the writing on the wall that she was wanting to, you know, get married and have kids and stuff. And I was like, eh, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> and um, and and that was when they had Alon Rubin out because um, he had just cut the record, and they were about to start that touring cycle. But then Alon ended up going with Nine Inch Nails. And so they were looking for a drummer and Justin was kind of like, Hey man, uh, you know, we're looking, what do you think? And I was like, Ooh, shit, really? And you know, Paramore was, was, it was interesting for me in that I've always loved that band big time. Like I would watch Paramore live videos before I would go play with Kelly just to get fired up. But I never, I appreciated that band so much for what it was. Like, you know, people ask me like, what band would you want to be in? And it's like, I don't. I, the the reason that I love that band is because it's who they are, and that drummer is is you know I don't want to replace Lars or Morgan Rose or you know I want them to stay in that band, and in the same way Zach was that band for me, and then even when Alon came in, it was still like dude I want Alon to be there, hmm. so you know I was almost a little torn. I was like God I, I kind of don't want to do it <laughs> like I just I want to enjoy it yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to at least audition. Um, and so we, uh, I got called to audition uh, later that year. And it was me and Dave Elich and Luke Holland and um, Daniel, uh, oh, oh, the guy that used to play drums in Norma Jean and then went on to play in Under Oath, I think. Uh, I can't remember his last name. But anyway, it was the four of us auditioning. And for whatever dumb reason, uh, I got it. And um, it was crazy. And what was so weird is, you know, the audition, um, Elon's there, um, which is, you know, intimidating to begin with. He's also just like on his phone, not paying attention (laughs) whatsoever (laughs) while I'm just like flailing through these songs. And the worst part of the whole thing is, and so Justin and I have a, a very serious bond around the band failure. Like that, that was our favorite band growing up. Um, we kind of discovered it together. That was, it's always been our thing. And um, he texted me before I got picked up to go to the audition while I was still sitting at the hotel. And he was like, Hey man, Ken Andrews is here, which for those that don't know, is the singer of failure and the guitar player and wrote all that shit. Okay. He's kind of one of my all time childhood heroes. Yeah. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Cause he had <laughs> mixed, um, the record that we were about to tour on. And, um, so he was just there and, and not only was he just there, he was like taking pictures. So I'm trying to fucking play. 
I've got a lawn sitting in the corner playing fucking solitaire on his phone, and I've got fucking dude in my face taking pictures and i'm like oh my god this is too much <laughs> if he can make it through this then he's hired oh dude it was brutal um but yeah i survived and i guess i got hired so i, I guess it went well um but yeah it was uh, and getting to play with that band was just incredible they're some of my favorite people on the planet and we just had so much fun yeah um and getting to play those songs you know live is just that there's just nothing more fun than that <laughs> it's incredible that's that's and and before that with kelly clarkson yeah i was okay. with kelly for about four years and okay. then moved over to paramore yeah and and i don't know anything about her but it, my pers- it always seems like she's a pretty cool person she's incredible yeah this- she's one of the most remarkable human beings i've ever known isn't it crazy? Like the first winner of American Idol, and she's still just kind of rocking. Just you know, I don't know. She seemed like she would be really great to work with. She is great, and and the 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 reason why she is successful still, and has always been, is because the only thing that she cares about is singing. She loves it so much, and it's all she wants to do. She doesn't give a shit about anything else. She doesn't give a shit about fame, uh, to her detriment to a certain degree. She. She doesn't feel deserving of her fans. So a lot of times she won't go out there and say hey to them. And they take that as her being, you know, a diva. But it's it's quite the opposite. She doesn't – a lot of times I, I wonder if she doesn't feel like she deserves any of what she has because all she gives a shit about is singing. Wow. She's awesome. I, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've, I don't have one negative thing to say about her. I love her to pieces. With those two groups – is there like what were some of your responsibilities that you know anybody that wants to work in this capacity in this you know pop world you know pop drumming kind of thing i mean we've we've discussed the the Nashville thing the jazz thing you know ad, ad nauseum but you know in the pop world are you playing live to a click are you starting loops are you like what are some maybe unique responsibilities as the drummer for either of these groups that you can Well I, I can I can get Paramore out of the way pretty quickly in that the majority of that stuff with the exception of a couple of the songs on on the newer record which is not the newer record now but the newer record at the time yeah. when I was touring with them um, we had tracks on a couple of those and the the keyboard player was firing those tracks. So I didn't have to do anything as far as that's concerned. Anything other than those songs was just, uh, I had a little DB 88 click, um, a little metronome and, um, I would fire that and it went to everybody else's ears, but, um, that was it. Um, with Kelly, it was a whole different deal. Um, the, the majority of it fell on Jason Halbert's shoulders, who was the band leader and, um, uh, keyboard player. And he, um, you know, with her stuff, there's there's a, a really high demand for for correctly replicating the record, okay. um, because it since it is more pop. Um, you know, if you were to strip away all the pop elements, um, and just go down to to what you've got as far as instruments on stage, it's kind of basically a rock band, um, which is is a little inappropriate um, for a lot of those songs. So we had to. We had to take a lot of time, um, especially as, as each record came and went, sort of figuring out how to, 
to best replicate the records. Um, and so a lot of that did fall on my shoulders. Um, so Jason, you know, because the, the idea was that we wanted, we wanted as, as few things on tracks as possible. Okay. Um, and so in, in order to, to achieve that, at least from my chair, um, I had to incorporate a lot of, you know, electronic components. Um, so I had at, at one point, and I, I could be talking right out of my ass, but I want to say I had 16 different trigger surfaces around the kit. I had two different brains and none of it was slave to the tracks. It was all completely independent of any other MIDI that was going on on stage. Oh, that's kind of um, cool. So, but as a result of being completely autonomous, I had to design it and build it and execute it, you know, all on my own. Um, and, and neither tech that I had at the time really had much of a, a leaning towards that. So it was kind of all on me. So that was a little hectic. Um, but also, man, I learned more from, from that shit that, that I still apply now. Um, that was huge for me. So I, I, ne I never, with those two acts in particular, and I, I have had to deal with it in other th things, but I wasn't like, you know, running tracks. I was never hitting a space bar. Ableton was nowhere near me. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely did have to, to go through all those multi-track sessions and pull all those drum samples and map them around on either the multi-12 pad or on a separate kick trigger or, a separate kick pedal. Um, you know, was this, shit. was this your choice to, to do it this way? Or were they like, no, we want to see the drummer play this stuff. It, it was, it was a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I, I got really excited about the possibility of, of kind of having all of that responsibility from the drum chair, sonically yeah. speaking, not, not just, in terms of, you know, the gear and the creation of it, but just throughout the course of the show, you know, when you hear a little clap fill at the bar four of the verse to actually see someone playing it. Right. Um, right. That was, I think that was something that we were all on board with and I may have run with it a little more than what they were insinuating. Um, but I, I think the end result was everybody was happy um, just because, we we did achieve a situation in which we we kept tracks to a bare minimum. That's cool. That's uh, and that's, that's encour encouraging to hear. I, even Steve Gould talks about that. You know, some of the gigs that he did where they wanted him to play those things, and and he's like, "Why?" You know, and, and we just see the crowd reaction. It's like, "Ah, oh, yes, I get it." Yeah, it it really does make sense. I mean, mm -hmm. the shows have lost a lot of their luster just because. Well, for a time period, there was there was a there was a period of time where so many things ended up on tracks. Uh, you know, just kind of like what I'm, uh, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing don't coalesce. Like what this doesn't, you know, it's not as enjoyable. Do you think we're getting away from that again? I do. I I, um, I say that uh, you know from my couch in my basement. I, I don't go <laughs> see shows. I don't you know. I don't really know as much what's happening, but just from my friends that are drummers it seems to be like people are trending more towards what we were doing with Kelly um, back in those days um, now, especially in the country world. And, you know, the country world's kind of five to ten years behind the curve on everything anyway. So hold on to your electronic kit is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. 
Got it. Got it. I'll go back out to the trash can and dig that. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> when you were working with Paramore in 2013, and I know this has probably been covered and you've talked about it and there's been stuff. And I remember this. Uh, I've been I've been in town. I'm surprised we haven't met. I've been in town since 2000. Oh, okay. I know we have some mutual friends for sure. Uh, but you were uh, in a golf cart accident in 2013. Correct. Uh, when you were with Paramore. So that kind of... Could you kind of give us a quick overview on what happened? And what I'm super curious to know is that the doctors were saying you've crushed your, I think it was left hand, and you'll never play again. And I'm just super curious to know what was the journey back. I mean, I saw a video you did maybe a month ago, two months ago, or something like that for Minel. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think he was ever in a golf cart accident because it's. <laughs> so uh, maybe let people know what happened, and then like, what was the road to recovery? Uh, I'll try and make this as succinct as possible because it was a very significant um, period of time in my life, yeah. and where a lot of things happened and a lot of things changed, and um, I, I would say that it it was one of the larger turning points. Um, in my life. Um, but the, the short version is that, um, uh, without getting into the accident, not because I'm avoiding it, just cause it sounds like what would be more beneficial in the answering of this question is, is more on the back end of it. Um, but you know, I got in a wreck, I was at a fucking birthday party. We were just hanging out and, um, we were just driving around in the neighborhood on a golf cart, but it's a raised golf cart on ATV tires or, you know, crazy whatever mm. tires. Um, and, um, it flipped and thankfully no one else was hurt. Um, I broke seven bones in my face. I tore the top half of my ear. Um, I broke, I, so as far as my hand was concerned, I only broke my pinky, but what happened was, um, I was unconscious and it was dark and so nobody knew what was happening, but the batteries had ruptured. Three of the six batteries had ruptured and just leaked acid, um, on to me. And I was laying in acid for 15 minutes and they were worried that I had, uh, a neck injury. So my neighbor was actually sitting on me. And while I was unconscious, I was still writhing because my body was reacting to the fact that it was just burning. Um, and, but nobody knew. And, um, we didn't know until I got to the hospital and that I had, you know, third degree burns on several parts of my body. The, the biggest of which was my left hand. And, um, so yeah, I went through this long sort of process of, of, uh, working with the, the, the team at Vanderbilt and a plastic surgeon to, uh, to, get grafts in place. So I had a a graft on my foot, on my hand and on my chest on like my left shoulder. Mm -hmm. And, um, most of the grafts went pretty well, but the, the graft on my left hand, the majority of it failed. Wow. And, um, and so when he told me that I was like, okay, what does that mean? And he was like, well, there's a, there's an excellent possibility that within a year your hand will seize up Mm. um and it will it will stop working and our only option at that point is is surgery but the likelihood of it 
of it being successful is, is pretty low. And in fact, we may make it worse. And that's the concern. We may not even do the surgery. You might have to just accept that degree of handicap in your hand, um, which that degree would mean that I wasn't able to play. Yeah. And so I, I, I had this year of my life where I was just waiting for that to happen. Um, I was just daily, I would wake up and move my hand and go, okay, today's not the day. Um, and thankfully we got past the, the year mark and, um, you know, he was able to say with some degree of assuredness that, uh, I wasn't going to have that problem. So we just, you know, and nothing ever happened with it after that. But I just, I had a year of total butt puckery where I was just waiting for my fucking career to just stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it's not, not ideal. Uh, was there any like physical, um, what's, what's the word, uh, physical therapy or anything else that you were doing to kind of make sure that that wasn't happening or keep it strong or. Yeah, I had to do, I mean, in the, in the beginning there, there was a lot of physical therapy. Um, you know, there was a, there was a recovery, a defined recovery period where I was having to go to physical therapy like once a week. Um, and I had exercises that I had to do with my hand. Um, yeah. and there was, I can't remember how long that defined period was, but it was a few months where there was certainly things that they were having me actively do to try and combat, right. You know, the, the worst case scenario. Yeah. There's, there's those of us that are dealing with, you know, repetitive stress injuries and, you know, like carpal tunnel or other types of things like that. And if there's anything that we can take away from this trauma that you've experienced and how you recovered. And I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if there is, they're, they're somewhat unrelated, but, um, just kind of maybe just the fact that, you know, you had, as most drummers, we just have exceptionally strong hands and, you know, wrists and forearms just from this kind of thing. But at the same time, it, uh, as you get older, you know, you're more susceptible to these types of injuries. And how do we mitigate any of the negative effects of those kinds of things? And didn't know if if there was something in there in your experience that... There's not. And honestly, mm -hmm. I, I hate to admit this, but I, I am a, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon when it comes to that sort of thing in that I have never treated an injury. Um, if I have some sort of pain or anything that starts to happen in my hands or wrists or feet or whatever, and I've got, I've got a situation going on right now that I, I just, I try and ignore it till it goes away because as soon as I feel like I treat it, then I'm, I'm acknowledging that it's, that it's a part of me and I don't, I just want to pretend that that shit doesn't exist because I just, I cannot, I cannot fathom a universe in which I don't get to play drums. So logic would state that you would deal with whatever the fucking problem is, but instead I ignore it. <laughs> so I'm probably not the right guy to ask that question. Well, Sorry. but you know, I think there's a certain power in that, you know, perspective that, uh, you know, a, a little bit of dose of that, um, you know, Maybe a shot or two, that, that combination, <laughs> um, you know. I, I feel bad because I feel like this, we we really started on a high note, Miles, and it's just kind of <laughs> gone down. <laughs> hey, I'm not the interviewer, pal. I know. I I'm not in charge of the emotional trajectory of this fucking interview. I should have looked at the map, the road that I created <laughs> here. 
But damn it, we're going to end on a, on a high note. I, I am so grateful, man, that you've been on my list uh, since I started this thing. I, I have this major list that keeps getting added to. And so that's what I love about Nashville. I feel like I can just kind of like reach out and grab just somebody great to talk to and, and who's had just an amazing career. And and then all these new fuckers keep moving to town that I have to talk to. Um <laughs> obnoxious right yeah um but man i so appreciate this is gonna this is gonna work out great um tomorrow morning i'm gonna turn this thing around real quick and it's gonna (laughs) uh so if you're listening to this uh we just did this yesterday um but are you gonna memento this podcast where you just reverse the order of of our conversation so you do change the emotional trajectory back to the way it probably should have been? It's somewhat. I'm going to just hit reverse in logic, and um, <laughs> it's going to be like some old-school backwards masking from, like, Kiss, 1982. Not. It's going to be you t- telling people not to ride in a golf cart, you know. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but, man... Um, continued success this year and i hope at some point we get a chance to to meet in person connect and uh, you know recognize each other at some point and just be like hey what's going on um yes, please. but uh thanks so much for this and um i'll i, I, I usually let people know when it's going to post but i'm letting you know right now it's posting tomorrow uh, oh boy eight in the morning um, I'll, I'll send you a link, uh, if, if you're interested at all. Uh, but man, this is, no, been... I definitely don't want to hear myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> like, why the fuck did I say I, that's dude, I've done, you know, cause I've done a few podcasts and I'll go back and listen to it. I'm like, I sound like the most condescending know-it-all fuck on the planet. What a dipshit. So I probably won't listen. Okay. Well, you're in luck. Cause I interviewed Kevin Murphy years ago. So <laughs> You've got uh, nothing to worry oh about. Oh my god! I okay. Let me just say this real quick. <laughs> I don't know you. We've never met, but you have a high level of respect in my respect book that <laughs> most people have never even achieved. That I know very well, and you, as a complete stranger, have just notched so much higher than all of those idiots. Well, I'm leaving that, that part. One in. little joke. <laughs> oh, it's fucking perfect, and I can't wait to tell Kevin about it. <laughs> Kevin's awesome, man. He's been a good supporter of the podcast too, man. So that's my baby. I yeah, love him. yeah. Well, if you ever get completely bored, I think our one hundredth episode was the Cocksmiths Roundtable. Oh no, shit! Yeah. Um, now we're coming upon our three hundredth episode. I think yours is two ninety five, but our hundredth was me playing like uh, we did a round table with all those guys, almost all those guys, and did like Cards Against Humanity with some like made-up questions. Oh, my God. Um, and I hear it gets played regularly at the uh, Vader warehouse. Um, <laughs> but Kevin, you know, he kind of dominates the, you know what I mean? It's, it's, Imagine it's that. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Miles, thank you so much. I'm going to let you go and do your thing, and um, I'll be in touch for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, dude. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Miles McPherson. That was a lot of fun. Hope you all enjoyed that. I asked him a question about working with Dolly Parton, and he said, I don't think I did, but he wasn't sure. 
point being, sometimes you do sessions for producers and you're not really sure who it's for or what it is. Um, I took that out of the interview, but I, I thought it was important to mention that um, some of these players, like Miles, they're in and out of the studio all the time, and sometimes they're working with artists that they never get to meet, but they end up on records, and you see credits for them, and it's just a just an aspect of the industry and, and the way recording happens. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's uh, on some records or recordings with Dolly. I know his father is, but uh, he's a busy man, and rightly so, and I super appreciate him. Speaking of great dudes, uh, next week, Zach Albetta is interviewing the legendary Peter Erskine. This will be the fourth time he has been on the Working Drummer podcast. This will be the third full interview, and we're just super excited that somebody like Peter wants to come back and talk about things that are going on this year. Uh, As Zach describes him, he's kind of the Yoda of uh, the drumming community, and I can't wait to uh, hear that interview. We've got some exciting things coming up for the 300th episode. We'll keep you posted on that. We're probably going to take a little bit of time off for the holidays, maybe a week for Thanksgiving, a week for Christmas, and maybe New Year's Eve. We'll try and have some other stuff in its place, but stay tuned for any updated news regarding that stuff. Uh, But for now, thanks so much for listening. Please, everyone, stay safe, take care, and hope to see you real soon. Bye-bye.